This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 6th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Medzollers, and we're going to look at a few developments that took place over the past week in the area of federal taxes. And we actually had a couple of IRS announcements late in the week. So one we're going to look at late in the week is IRS announcements that took into account some criticism that had been leveled at the IRS related to their classification of vehicles for the new clean vehicle credit for 2023. And we're going to see more vehicles that now move up into the SUV, van, and truck classification based on how the IRS is now identifying those categories versus how they originally announced in those 2023-1 the categories would be determined. So we'll talk a little bit about which vehicles it appears based on the Tax Notes Today article uh, appears to be what's in the mix now that wasn't before and discuss kind of the pressure that was there and why this was a bit different. But we're going to go ahead and talk about that. We also have a proposed revenue procedure that will be published where the IRS is suggesting establishing a new voluntary tip reporting procedure to replace the current programs that are out there. This one would rely more on automated reporting systems, uh, point of sale capture of sales, and then a estimation, shall we say, of tips based on, and that, that would be compared with what actually ends up being reported to see if you could stay under the program. So there is an interesting aside of getting the cash tips into the mix, but we'll talk a little bit about how that would work and what they're talking about. It is a draft procedure, so the program is not going now. Obviously in draft form, it is at the point where the IRS is looking at comments on the procedure as well. But if you have clients in the restaurant industry, you may want to consider other parts of other service industries where tips are a significant part of what's being paid. You might want to take a look at this guidance. Finally, we're going to take a look at a tax court case where, you know, normally when we have a taxpayer with a car, we get to tax court and we discover they didn't have a log. They don't have any sort of record of their business mileage. The tax court disallows the loss entirely. Well, this we're going to look at a case where the taxpayer actually had a log that accounted for every single mile of the use of his truck for the year. But we discover that the court didn't accept that either for what, as you get into the details, becomes some fairly obvious reasons why the court was more than slightly skeptical about his log. So we'll take a look at that as well. So let's begin by looking at notice 2023-16 issued on February 3rd. This is where the IRS revised the classification of vehicles for purposes of the clean vehicle credit added by the Inflation Reduction Act of 2023, or I should say, well, I guess the, the, the name of it now is different, so I guess it is a new credit. It is, I think, a better way to look at it is a revised version of what we had a credit previously for electrical power vehicles that's now expanded to cover fuel cell vehicles, which my understanding is there's only one model being sold, or actually even it's just being leased. I don't think they're selling it, Toyota is. Uh, which is the which is in Southern California only because it's the only place where we have hydrogen fuel cell refueling and any with any significant amount that you could actually use the car, but we do have that in there. So if that catches on, we're there. There had been a lot of complaints after the IRS's publication of the notice 2023-1 uh, that the notice was too narrow in its definition of what qualified, especially as an SUV. As you may be aware, there are a lot of vehicles that are, you know, what are called crossovers. They combine the features of an SUV along with the features of a 
you know, of, of a car or basically a standard sedan. And they're not really based on truck bodies or truck frames, truck bodies, I guess is a better way to look at it. They're, they're meant to be more of a sedan-like experience. Uh, frankly, I kind of consider some of them to look like just souped up high, just like souped up hatchbacks, but I think the people driving them wouldn't like that term. So we won't call it that. But nevertheless, these are cars something like in the electric car range, uh, the Mustang Mach-E from Ford is a classification where under the IRS's original guidance, that was going to be considered not an SUV, nor was it a truck or a van. We're pretty sure it's not a truck or a van. So it's not an SUV. And why it's important is you may remember under the basically under the Inflation Reduction Act rules under Section 30 Cap D for the credit for clean electric vehicles, there is a manufacturer suggested real retail price limitation. So the MSRPs, and that limitation says if the vehicle is a SUV, truck, or van, the limitation is up to $80,000 for manufacturer suggested retail price, which the IRS did tell us back in notice 2023-1 would be that sticker price on the side of the window, right? You know, the one that's required by federal law to be there. So that would be your manufacturer suggested retail price. And that is the governing item as opposed to the actual price charge for the vehicle, or if the dealer were to stick some other stuff on there. So that, that that's our background. But the problem was that the, you know, if you had a Mustang Mach-E as a sedan, well, the problem is it suggested retail price is more than $55,000. And that created a problem since if it's not an SUV, while it is less than $80,000, I suppose at least in some configurations, a lot of these you can configure them a model that will go above the 80 grand limit as well. Uh, but in some configurations would be below 80 grand, it's not going to be below $55,000, even in the least, let's say, you know, the least configured, the cheapest configuration would get you above the $55,000 level. And obviously that now means you don't get a 50, you don't get a $7,500 credit. So the IRS announced that they are going to use uh, the rules under basically Title 40 of the Code of Federal Regulations, Section 600.315-08 to classify SUVs, vans, and trucks based on the EPA uh, classification, which is what is reported on that same sticker with the manufacturer's retail price of the category of vehicle that this is considered part of. So we're gonna be using that to actually uh, title this. This results in a lot of the crossovers that had failed under the original IRS version, which based, I believe, on Department of Transportation rules. Um, now it's going to qualify in this case. Now, Tax Notes had an article on Friday, which was exactly, which had described this. And in the article, they did discuss some of the vehicles that now qualify. And so, for instance, crossovers that now are classified as SUVs, not has not SUVs, trucks or vans, and that's kind of the way the category works. You know, you're either one of those three or you're not one of those three, and the not category is the $55,000 limit. One of those three is the $80,000 limit. We'll now include the Cadillac Lyric, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, and all versions of the Tesla Model Y will now all qualify under this. As I recall the Model Y, which is interesting how the article is written, but my recollection was there was variants of the Model Y that were an SUV if you had enough seats in it. It could qualify under the SUV rules. 
However, now it's clear that the models, all of those models now qualify. So if you've, you know, if your client went out and took delivery of a Mustang Mach-E and actually saw the first one in the wild, at least, well, one I paid attention to because it was parked next to it. So, you know, you looked over and, oh, I guess that must be the Mach-E, you know, the Mustang Mach-E. And it's like, yeah, it was a Mach-E. So I've actually seen one of those. Um, you know, haven't seen a Cadillac Lyric yet that I've noticed. Of course, I don't know I'd notice one. So that, that's it. Seen a lot of Teslas, though. I have seen those quite a bit. And these days, a lot of Rivians. Uh, so the, the, those are showing up. Uh, so I'm seeing a few of those around. I know, and it's not just one running around the neighborhood because I saw multiple colors. So I know it's not the same car, the same truck. So we got that in there. Also, it solves a problem in some cases, like the Volkswagen ID4. Now it gets SUV classification for both its two and four wheel drive versions. Originally, only the four wheel drive version of the Volkswagen ID4 was considered a sport utility vehicle for purposes of the $80,000 you know, test for manufacturers suggest the retail price. But the two, the two wheel drive version did not. And appropriately, as with the other vehicles here, the suggested retail price was more than $55,000, rendering that not qualified for the credit at this point. So we have a lot more cars than in the place on the higher cost level up to 80 grand with this structure. Now, don't forget, the new vehicle credit still has some issues and higher price is not necessarily a good thing as Tesla kind of has you know, taken a route this year to drop their prices, partially to come under these limits, which clearly was a major motivator. But I think also because realizing that if every car you've got is at the $80,000 manufacturer suggested retail price, that a lot of the market's not gonna be able to buy it. And the real problem is, remember, we have adjusted gross income limitations now. And those who are buying 80 grand and above vehicles, or 80 grand so vehicles, let's say, they tend to have somewhat higher income than those who might be out there buying on the lower end, something like a Chevy Bolt, right? So at the higher end, the problem is, you know, you're not going to find that even though your car now has a manufacturer's just a real retail price that is below the limit, your buyers quite often are going to have too much income to be able to take advantage of this credit. So therefore, if you really want to use the credit to sell cars, you probably have to come a bit more down market. So we're going to see how that works. Now, I would say we did find that we had, if you didn't hear it this week, that Ford has decided to basically drop the price on the um, Mustang Mach-E. So that came down this week. So I guess good news, bad news, if you're a Mach-E owner, um, you know, if, if you bought one earlier this year at the higher price, it's like, well, it looks like you'll get your $7,500 credit now, but it looks like people that, people that buy it from here forward will get a bigger, will get, will pay less and still get a $7,500 credit. Remember as well, we're still waiting to see what the impact's going to be when the battery rules come in. Those have been delayed. We expect the IRS to give a guidance next month, at least preliminary guidance on what will qualify under the battery rules. So in the interim, if a vehicle meets the, you know, final manufacturer in the United States rules, the vehicle is, you know, meets the manufacturer's suggested retail price limitation, and the taxpayer who's buying the vehicle is below the AGI limit, the modified AGI limits, either for this year or back in 22, because you can use either year for testing. And remember, those limits for a married couple filing a joint return is going to be at $300,000. So 
that's the limit. If you have somebody who is single, then we go to $150,000 as their income limitation. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, with an interim, I believe it's $225,000 if you are head of household under that filing status. So there are some opportunities early in the year. The problem with early in year opportunities right now, to be totally honest, is it's still tough to get delivery of these vehicles. And since it looks like the battery rules will come into play, let's say somewhere probably April, I don't know that you can get a vehicle before the battery rules will come in. And since we don't know how the battery rules are going to be applied for sure, uh, we do know some vehicles are highly unlikely to meet the requirements. There's been much speculation that a car like the very, you know, the lower cost versions, like things like the Chevy Bolt, will probably not meet the requirements. So basically, if you can't get delivery of the Bolt before April, you're probably not going to get $7,500, so you shouldn't count that into your mix. But we'll see how that works. There's still a lot of questions to be answered, but if you do have a client who is taking delivery of, let's say, a Ford Mustang Mach-E, uh, here in the next, you know, that took it after the beginning of the year or takes delivery of it before the battery rules at least get out and their income's not too high, then it looks like they might have, you might have some good news for them at this point with these changes the IRS made to the vehicle classification rules. Next up, the IRS in Notice 2023-13 announced a proposed revenue procedure, and this is what it is, um, which will deal with tipping, right? So this is a new voluntary reporting procedure proposed. Currently in the industry, there are voluntary programs that can insulate, let's say, restaurant clients from being subject to payroll tax liabilities when the IRS comes back in and examines them for potential underreporting of tips. Uh, if they get in these programs and they report according to them, then they'll be protected from that potential payroll tax liability. So there is some incentive to sign up. However, there's been a lot of pressure from the industry saying, look, with automated systems these days, you know, we should be able to have something that relies on our automated payment systems. So let's say, for instance, I go ahead and I buy something at a restaurant, I use my credit card, and I go ahead and I put the tip on the bill with the credit card. That's captured by the restaurant electronically via their point of sale system. And they're saying we should be able to effectively have a, if we have that in place and we report a reasonable amount or our employees report a reasonable amount of cash tips, then, you know, we should get this protection under programs like that. So the IRS is proposing this new program, because everything's got to have a new acronym, will be called SITCA or S-I-T-C-A, which stands for Service Industry Tip, Com Tip Compliance Agreement. And this is optional. You do not have to participate in this, but you can. It does cover those in the service industry aside from gambling. So gambling doesn't count for this, but other service industry businesses that rely on tips will be allowed to sign up and use this. Now, in order to use this, you have to have a technology-based set of systems, time and attendance systems, as well as a point of sales capture system that will capture tips. And your point of sale capture system for capturing tips has to allow people to pay for the tips in the same manner that they pay for their restaurant food. You know, I, I can't have a system where, you know, you, you, you can pay for, let's say, your food using Visa, MasterCard, American Express, but we have a system that will allow you to, let's say, pay for tips using um, something like v you know, Venmo, 
or something like that. That would be considered, or let's say you can do MasterCard and you do, let's say, American Express to pay for your meal, but you can use Visa or MasterCard to pay for the tips, and we're not capturing the Visa MasterCard. That that would be a problem. So people have to be able to use either method. Have to be able, any method they can use for tips effectively, they have to be able to use for the restaurant, for paying the restaurant, any of the electronic systems. And it has to, you know, you can't have a special group that's tips only methods. As well, you have to have a reasonable amount of, you know, essentially re report reasonable minimums of tip minimums based on cash. And they do describe and they're going to be working on systems to make it. They indicate they do understand that cash tips tend to be lower than tips on credit cards. So they're going to have methods that they'll consider to do that. But if a restaurant ends up reporting in and the total tips reported by their employees are based on their point of sale tips, and then the adjustment will compute that will be able to come up under Iris's methods for a reasonable adjustment for cash tips. If it's less than that total, then they're, you know, or whatever the IRS gives you a sign of supposedly, I would assume the IRS is going to give us a low cash tip option that we got to come in above. Uh, if you come in below that number, you'll be out of the program and you'll lose your protection. So there is some incentive to make sure that employees are educated. You have to have education programs in place. And the employer is probably going to be a little insistent to make sure they actually get reported. So we'll see how that works. Again, at this point in time, it simply is a proposed revenue procedure. These sorts of things, sometimes Iris implements them and sometimes they don't. So I wouldn't go get all ready for this to happen. But the IRS did indicate that there had been some basically comments from the restaurant industry that suggested it would be a good idea if they went down a system that recognized the value of these automated reporting systems and allowed them to lean more heavily on those for purposes of showing adequate restaurant tips. And basically it's gonna say that, yeah, you can rely on that entirely for your tips that are going to be credit card based and we'll then talk about you know, what's a reasonable cash amount that we'd expect to be in there. You know, at least this much in cash chip should be there, given the history we have for what's being paid under credit card-based payments. So we'll see how that goes. Finally, we have the case of Craddock versus Commissioner Tax Court Summary Opinion 2023-4. This one came out on January the 30th. And this one is kind of interesting because we're going to look at the issue under 274D. And the question the taxpayer had was the taxpayer had a job, but in addition, he ran a business on the side. Now, this business on the side had, I think it was over 34,000 of expenses reported on his return, but he only had $1,000 worth of income. He's trying to sell these programs. And obviously, you know, the court's going to be somewhat suspicious there anyway, but he did have a lot of auto mileage. In fact, as I recall, about two-thirds of his expenses that he claimed on this business were expenses of driving his pickup truck around, supposedly to go out and market this program to various potential buyers. Obviously, he wasn't very good at selling it because, as we noted, he only had a thousand in sales for the year. Uh, yeah, the math wasn't working, but he did have a mileage log. Nine out of 10 times when you see these cases, you end up with a taxpayer that the court immediately says there was no contemporaneous log maintained. They didn't provide that information to us. Again, the Congress said under 274D that if you don't have 
a you know contemporaneous documentation of travel expenses of which auto mileage is one of those types of travel expenses then no deduction will be allowed and that documentation has to tell us the dates times um, and the business that was that was conducted nature of the business etc all that sort of stuff has to be available and documented contemporaneously the courts have allowed you to go back to go to third-party documents and they do indicate, and this will come up in this case, that if all we have is the taxpayer's self-serving testimony about this, that they won't necessarily follow that. But initially, it seems like, well, this is going to be a great idea. He has a log. It accounted for every single mile down to the mile. So this seems good, but I think some of you might be, yeah, and it seems unrealistic how that happened. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, you normally people qualify under having it for a few, you know, a couple of months or something, however long get them to do it before they give up. But you do have some options to let you do it based on, a, you know, a, a, let's say a run of two or three months, you get the numbers from that, and you can extrapolate that over the years for business versus non-business use. But this guy had the whole thing. So it seems like, well, that's great. But here's the problem. It turns out that in, or in documenting things like the fuel he bought and other stuff for his expenses related to this car, well, he used bank statements to back this up, which is fine. I mean, that's what you could do. Contemporaneous bank statements are fine. But it turns out there were a couple of problems in there. First thing is the log itself was internally inconsistent. That is, he had one entry in the log where he supposed he was in a, a different city in a different state for three days. However, his bank statement had him buying gas in a different state in the middle of that trip. And this was not a location where they were sitting on the border. I mean, it'd be one thing if you were, if you're in Texarkana, Arkansas or Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas. Yes, I could see switching states and getting your gas in a different state. But if you're sitting someplace, like let's say here in Phoenix, if you had came to Phoenix for three days, but supposedly on Tuesday, you got your gas refilled in Salt Lake City, that suggests that maybe you weren't in Phoenix and maybe the log has you in the right, wrong place. Well, he did admit at trial that he might've written down the wrong date. Turns out then the court went and looked at the actual bank statements. And in the bank statements, we have multiple bank statements entries. They had a number of them that, again, had him buying gas, because, again, this was to document his gas purchases, his fuel purchases, that had him buying gas in a different state than the log claimed he was in on that day. Right? And, I mean, and there was no way to reconcile how he would have bought gas in state A when he was supposedly in state B. It suggested strongly that, in fact, he was you know, he never went to state B or what is probably also very likely is that the log was something he reconstructed after the fact. And therefore, having pulled that together, obviously it wasn't going to be consistent with the uh, bank statement. And he never it probably never occurred to him that the IRS would look at those two things. Hint, they look at those sorts of things because they realize they expect that this perfect log almost certainly was made up. Why? Because real people don't tend to have these perfect logs that document every single mile. 
um, you know, it's rare you're going to find a person that detail-oriented. And we should say for the other expenses with his business, they were disallowed because he really couldn't document how he came up with those numbers. So Mr. Craddock wasn't exactly showing he's a super detail-oriented person, which made it even more unlikely as a service to figure out on exam that somehow He'd been totally, he couldn't handle details of things like expenses for other things he did in the business, couldn't figure out how those numbers were come up, couldn't give them any list of how he had arrived at those numbers, but somehow he'd be perfect on the auto logs. Yeah, it suggests if you dig a bit, you're going to find something that's going to show internal inconsistencies in that apparently initially, what appeared initially to be a pristine, well, except for that one set of entries that were inconsistent, but everywhere else looked like a nice pristine auto log. It's like, nope, it seems to be a problem. Other problem he had is on that log, he admitted to trial, you know, they asked him, well, you got this job, right? And you worked there. So didn't you drive your truck to your regular W-2 job, which is not going to be deductible on Schedule C? And he had to admit he did. And didn't you sometimes, didn't you, you never drove any personal use of this truck? You never went on, well, no, I went on errands and stuff like that. And the court noted that, well, his log never really seemed to indicate any use that was for, it didn't indicate the trips that were for his company, you know, the comp, I should say the W-2 job trips, which would be non-deductible commuting, nor to indicate the trips were there on personal errands, which also would not have been deductible. So because of that, despite having a complete log, Mr. Craddock ended up not getting any deduction allowed for the auto expenses for his business. And as I said, he also lost all the other expenses because he had no backup records for those, um, which as I said, it, you know, it, that in itself probably made the IRS and the court very skeptical about, well, how could he have perfect auto records if he, you know, if he can't keep the records straight for some things, things that are way simpler? supposedly to keep records straight on, and yeah, it turns out he did. So that's how this one worked out. Remember, 274D is one of those rules where you absolutely have to have the backup. It was passed by Congress specifically to override the rule that we often talk about, the Cohen rule, right? Where as long as you can prove that you had the expense, as long as you can reasonably show that we, sh that we should have had these expenses and they can be reasonably estimated, then we're able to claim a deduction. Congress did not want people to be able to use uh, basically the Cohen rule for various items, including travel expenses generally. And this is the reason why we have this. And just as we talked about earlier about the charitable contribution cases we had last year, where if you didn't meet the requirements, you lost the deduction because Congress said you lose the deduction if you don't meet these requirements. Same thing here. This is a, it's not a, you get a partial, it's not the courts can estimate a number, it's you lose everything. So again, bad news. And that's the other problem, you gotta warn the clients, you know, if you try to reconstruct a log just before the exam, you're probably going to have internal inconsistencies. The minute you have those, that's going to destroy your case in front of the courts. And because we have seen so many inter internal inconsistency cases in these cases, it happens all the time. You know the IRS is going to come in looking for that. They're going to look for evidence of internal inconsistencies, and they're going to be considered things like the fact people tend to pay with ferry for fuel with credit cards, which have a nice record of exactly where you were, not just the date you were there, but what time during the day were you there. You know, if you suppose you had an eight-hour meeting with somebody in Phoenix, then as I said, it's a little tough to understand how you could have bought gas at noon in Salt Lake City.
Yeah, the whole thing doesn't make sense internally. So yeah, that was considered a big problem. So this has been the current federal tax developments here for the week of February the, let's see, this is going to be February 6th of this time, right? Monday, the 6th of February. Uh, current federal tax developments, you know, brought to you by Capital Financial Estate Education and your State Society of CPAs. If you have questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfelttaxdevelopments.com. Uh, I am on the road running around doing a few things right now, so I may be a little fun to get any attention from this week, fair warning, because uh, I have to have a couple of days for my last infirm session uh, for this year, and I am, that is out of town this time, so I've had I've had a number of infirms that were still being done uh, remotely. I think firms figured out that if you do that, uh, you don't have to pay for any travel. And travel's not cheap these days. Um, you know, it's become much more expensive. And the other thing they figure out is, you know, and yeah, you don't have to pay for me per diem. And so those are things they do. There are, though, a few people like the group I'll be seeing this week that are now getting back to at least partially in person, although in a lot of these cases, we're still broadcasting to some people who are working from home or on the road or maybe at client locations for that time or they're, they're out on the road. So we are doing a lot more of that remote as well. But in any event, we'll do that. I'll also be monitoring the uh, posts on the Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society of CPAs, Minnesota Society of CPAs, and Illinois Society of CPAs, oh, and Washington Society of CPAs, Connect sites. And I do also look in from time to time on the Idaho Society. So if you have any questions on those sites, you can post your questions in their groups. And I'll, if I see them, I think I can respond somewhat useful. I may give you some information on that. But otherwise, thank you for being here this week. We look forward to, in the coming week, giving you another set of what's going on in taxes as we approach our second due date, at least for physical year entities, um, in the, in the new year of 2023, so your February 15th fiscal year due dates for probably estates, maybe some C-Corps, um, things like that, or maybe partnerships that have uh, fiscal year uh, entity holders and under the old lease deferral method that it works out that, you know, you have end up with a year end that will give you your February instead of April year end for your partnership, or I should say instead of March year end, because you're November 30 instead of December 31st, uh, you know, any of those will be in place. So we'll take a look at that coming up. Otherwise, like I said, I'll see you next week here on Current Federal Tax Developments.